Connecting Coaches Cognition. Coaching with Courtney and Christensen. As a busy coach, you spend all day refueling, revamping, and reflecting with educators. Now is the time to stop and recharge your batteries with some much-needed coaching for the coach. Welcome back to another episode of C3. I'm Courtney Groskin, and I'm here with... Violet Christensen. Violet, what's new in your world? Well, September going into October, always a busy month for educators, and it's always a busy month in our household as well. I feel like um, more than half of my family and friends were born in September, and so it's a constant juggling of one party to the next and making sure you're prepared and have cupcakes here or um, the right present there to be ready for my two little ones who are both born in September as well. So we usually have um, a really big birthday celebration where we celebrate all of them, which is traditionally birthday palooza. And the last few years, it has been ballerina palooza. So this year, we were just twirling and and having way too much fun um, celebrating all the birthdays. And it almost, believe it or not, after the Olympics, veered on going to gymnast palooza. But we didn't have those outfits in time, so we were able to hold hold off and hold strong with ballerina palooza this year. So switching from one leotard to another, minus a tutu. Pretty much. They are very particular about which outfits are gymnast outfits and which outfits are ballerina outfits. And so we're just teetering between the two wonderful worlds and they're just exploring all sorts of fun new activities and just um, just enjoying this fall time as a family and just finished celebrating my, my husband's birthday actually the other day. And so we are just gearing up for the last birthday at school celebration. So we'll go get cupcakes tonight. Just one big celebration in September for you all. Yep. The happy birthday banner never comes down all month, so it has to live in the kitchen all month. And then eventually at the end of the month, we can move forward and and press on towards fall. So how are you doing, Courtney? What's going on in your world? Good. Just trying to enjoy uh, everlasting summer here in Colorado. We've had tons of 90-degree days, so the garden is still in full bloom. It's probably the longest amount of time that I've had flowers that I can go out and cut each day, but I'm so craving fall. Uh, It gets down into the 40s at night, so it feels like fall for a few hours, but I'm ready for sweater weather and to bring on the pumpkin spice. And you've had such a beautiful garden, at least you're getting to enjoy it this whole time, the fruits of your labor. Yeah, definitely. It's been a huge plus to have flowers this late in the season. I may have benefited from that, so thank you again. (laughs) Got to share the love. There's only so many places you can put bouquets in your house. Um, So that's been one of my favorite things is dropping bouquets off at different buildings to different people just to brighten their day. What a great way to spread the sunshine. Definitely. Today, we have Dr. Paul Bloomberg, who is the founder and CEO of the Core Collaborative Learning Network based in San Diego, California, and New York City. The mission of the Core Collaborative Learning Network is to expand learner ownership and agency through building a culture of belonging and efficacy through collaborative inquiry. Dr. Bloomberg is the co-author of the best-selling book, Leading Impact Teams, Building a Culture of Efficacy, a leading author of Peer Power, Unite, Learn, and Prosper, Activate, an Assessment Revolution through Mimi and Todd Press, and a lead author on the Empower Ed Learner E-Toolkit. Paul has led multiple successful school turnaround efforts and believes that public education must play a major role in deconstructing systems of oppression. Welcome, Paul. Welcome, Paul, to C3 Podcast. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you for joining us. I'm really grateful that you invited me. 
This is going to be an amazing conversation, I already know. Um, Can you just start with us to inform our listeners and tell us a little bit about your background in education and what you've been doing, where you are now, so that we have a little framing for our conversation? Yeah, um, of course. Like it's it's always a kind of an interesting story because people around the globe now think of me as more of a formative assessment expert, but I started my career in education as a band director, which a lot of people don't know. And I also have my master's in music performance. And so I think that why I resonate so much with formative assessment is because I don't believe that um, music teachers, um, people that deal with performance in general, coaches, um, art teachers, I think they're some of the best folks that really expand formative assessment the best because they understand the real world feedback and how important it is to give feedback to kids. But um, I was going to University of Colorado at Boulder um, doing my master's in music performance. And I um, had a student, I had 20 saxophone majors. I was a um, teacher's assistant or a TA um, at CU Boulder. And there was this one saxophone student that was talking so much about this professor that she loved and her name was Dr. Shelby Wolf and she has since passed away and so I just kind of took a chance and took this children's literature course even though I was doing my master's in music and I fell in love with this professor and everything that she stood for and then somehow she wrangled my full ride music scholarship to pay for my master's um, at CU Boulder in the education department. And so I ended up doing both and then begged and pleaded to do, I had to student teach twice. Um, so I ended up student teaching at Harrington Elementary and Denver Public Schools. And it was this really innovative school at the time. And there were coaches like Steph Harvey, Ellen Keene, Chris Tavani, all these huge comprehension e- experts Um, Diane Sweeney um, from the Public and Education Business Coalition, and they were um, coaches in our school. And I became a part of the Public Education Business Coalition for a very short time and then moved to um, San Diego um, to be a part of a leadership cadre and um, really fell in love with working in highly impacted schools, high poverty Title I schools, and became. a teacher back in San Diego, a third grade teacher. And I followed my kids for a couple of years. And then I ended up working miraculously in the district office of San Diego Unified um, in the math department, which I'm a literacy person, which is really weird. But um, supposedly my pedagogy and math caught the idea of all these folks in the San Diego Unified office, became an AP and then principal in a small district across the border um, called South Bay Union School District. And then my team of teachers really turned that school around. And we moved from, I think, 15% proficient to over 50% proficient um, high ELL population in a matter of three years. And then somehow I got hooked up with Doug Reeves um, with the 90-90-90 research and then um, met my friend Barb. Um, who was my trainer at at Leadership and Learning Center. And she was doing a lot of work with Common Formative Assessment and Larry Ainsworth. And then Barb and I just became really, really good friends. 
and then um, met John Hattie, and then we started both consulting for him, and then I, I kind of think the rest is history. So it kind of was just a series of events that led me to um, meeting Barb, who is one of my best friends. And then we decided that we had a, a good idea for a book based on the work that we'd both done. Um, but it all started with music, um, which I think a lot of people don't know. I had no idea, but that makes me love your book like a thousand times more. <laughs> I like loved it to begin with, but to know that you started with music and then had this amazing experience of taking an early literacy course and then <laughs> having that rich background. Now I understand why the book is so accessible <laughs> and why I enjoy it so much. Well, we're going in for a rewrite. So, I mean, I think any author that you know, they publish a book and the month after it's published, they're like, oh, I wish I would have done this. We wish we would have done that. Um, so we're in the process of planning Impact Teams 2.0 or whatever, whatever the new title will be. Yeah. Oh, we can't wait to see it. We literally hold it in our hand. Like this is our guidepost <laughs> as we're coaching. So know that oh, you're so... always in our teacher bag. <laughs> we can't wait to see it. Well, 2. that's 0. really sweet. And, you know, Barb and I and all of the 25 Impact Team coaches never take it for granted that people be like really have found meaning in the work. And so we're just really appreciative that you've even read the book. So let alone you know, are driving some of the work in your district um, through our framework. So thank you. Yeah, I think I'm in my third or fourth reading of it. <laughs> <laughs> what was your inspiration for writing this book? Well, you know, Barb and I um, met basic in Ferguson Fluorescent School District, and we were working um, for Doug Reeves at the time doing data teamwork. And we became really good friends through that particular project. Um, we happened to be in the St. Louis area at the same time a lot over the course of a couple of years. And, you know, we were just plagued all the time that, you know, the principal would say that, oh, their data teams were up and running and they were doing really well. And then we'd go and ask to visit to visit the teams and then we'd find that there might be one teacher doing all the work and the rest were kind of just sitting around not really engaging in the work at all and then the other thing that really plagued us is it was always about the teachers and it was always about what the teachers were doing and you know I had turned around a school in South Bay Union with a team of teachers with really around student goal setting and really like paring away all the initiatives that weren't really learner-centered. And that was before learner-centered was even a thing. And uh, we turned around that school with kids setting really ambitious goals. And we were having six-week goal-setting assemblies with kids. And this was like 12, 13 years ago. And Barb was kind of feeling the same way, that the thing that was really left out was the learner. And so, you know, after we met John... Patty, it kind of validated everything that we knew in our hearts that at the center of everything had to be the learner. And then we really understood the misunderstanding of what formative assessment is across our country. And at that point, it really formative assessment was more about accountability than it was about learning. And so we just really wanted to flop formative assessment on its head and really get back to the pure meaning that formative assessment 
is a process, not a product. And it's something that you partner with learners in. And um, really through the co-construction process of success criteria and really putting the kids at the center with self-assessment, peer assessment, and goal setting. And so we began our journey of kind of testing it out in districts all across the country. I think we had 10 pilot districts that we started the work in. And then we started to grow the work there so we knew that the work would be flexible enough in all different kinds of districts with all different kinds of populations. And then the work started to grow from there. Yeah, we do a lot of talking about humanizing the data. And I love the formative assessment is not a product, like it's a process. And really staying grounded in that as we move through um, leading our impact teams. Yeah, and it's really the process that you do alongside children and with them. And it's really also about removing the power structures in the class so the kids have equal power that the teacher has. And I think that there's an equity component behind that too, because we take kids for who they are, we believe in their potential, and we do anything that we can to set ambitious goals with our kids and help them to have clarity about what success looks like. And so I think the longer that we've been doing the work, the more that we focus on the classroom protocol, where now I think in the early days, we're focusing more on the teacher protocols of the book Now we focus um, in a deeper way on the classroom protocol and other classroom protocols that we've developed since the book. I love to hear the the evolution that you've had, even in writing the book and revising the book, that you're even shifting, even though you're starting with a student-centered lens, you're shifting even more to that student-centered end as you're doing more of this work and we're just realizing the success through that. You touched on this, Paul, but can you share us, share with us a succinct definition of impact teams from your perspective? Yeah, I'm going to read it, but it's probably changing because I think Barb and I went through 20 different iterations of this. And I think um, <laughs> now I sit on the board of the National Parent Union. Um, and I think that what I've learned since this really short board experience is that the partnership has to extend well beyond our students, but also to our families. And so the official definition is impact teams are teams of educators that partner with students. And now I'm going to add families. Um, They innovate to expand learner ownership um, and they scale their collective expertise to make a difference for all. And I think that um, the more that we've gotten um, deep into the work and the more that I partnered with the National Parrot Union, um, I think we've really realized that our families are just as important as our learners and that we haven't done a really good job of inviting families um, to our schools in, in the way that is best for them and that we've judged them, we've evaluated them. Um, and we've really not invited them in for the wonderful humans that we are. And so I think that as we move forward um, and develop this new model, um, our families will also be at the center because they really need to be. It's amazing how just adding one word <laughs> to that vision changes it and deepens it and really gives everyone a seat at that table. That's so valuable. Yeah, I really learned that through um, a principal in New York City. His name is Paul Martuccio at the Public School 13. 
And he started doing the same work with parents as that we were doing um, with kids. And so we have an evidence walk protocol that we also now have a student evidence walk protocol where students walk the building looking for evidence of student ownership. But he really started to expand it to families um, um, doing instructional rounds and buildings and looking for evidence of school-wide goals. And so I think he's been a pretty big inspiration to me and what he's done at the school level of really inviting parents in to the process and really kind of adapting. Now we're kind of co-adapting these protocols um, so we invite more families into the process as well. And it's just gone really, really well. And even through the pandemic, um, we've invited more families in. We've had more family engagement than we've ever had probably in the history of education. And so it just makes a lot of sense that families should be incorporated into the process as well. I'm sure you have a ton of them, but can you share a success story with us about impact teams that kind of stands out in your mind? Man, um, there are a lot and like, they're not all due to me, of course. Um, I don't ever attribute the success to Barb and I, and we're pretty, um, straightforward about that, that all of the sex, all of the success that impact teams, um, have had are really about the partnerships that we've created with educators, families, and students. I think, um, some of our big success stories, would live in New York City. I don't know how I ended up working there. Um, it's probably through my me uh, mentor, Mimi Aronson, who has since passed away. But I think we've had a lot of success in New York. Um, we partner with hundreds of schools there. And uh, it kind of really just put us on the map. And, um, and, I, and I really tribute District 31, um, which is in Staten Island, New York, as a big success story for us. A lot of the videos that you'll see on our YouTube channel come from the partnerships that we've had in District 31. And, you know, now we're working with other districts in New York City, and that has really grown. I think Barb would probably say she's had a lot of success in the Poudre School District and, and Colorado, but also, you know, all over the country. But I think some of my favorite success stories really reside in the students, you know, where you see students from Patrides. Um, it's a K-12 school in New York where we have video of these kids that have just really taken charge of the learning um, across the school. And so I think I couldn't probably choose one, uh, but when I look at these videos of the kids kind of taking ownership of their learning, it always still makes me cry to this day to kind of think that our collective work has had such impact on other people and other human beings. And we've also started a small network of schools in the United Kingdom um, that are really starting to take off. And so we're really proud of that. And we also have a network of schools in South Africa. And so I think like the work has just really blown up in ways that um, we could never expect. And then we have some Texas schools in Fort Bend ISD that have really taken this work by storm. And have really like given it meaning in ways that I don't think Barb and I never ever could have ever imagined. And like I said, they're the ones driving the show. We're just their cheerleaders. I mean, I'm so impressed that this is able to resonate across the ocean. Several I know. Us too. Us too. Us too. Like it's kind of uh, every day I wake up and I'm kind of shocked because Barb and I just wanted to write a little book for ourselves. And wanted to share what we thought and by no means did we think it would become a bestseller. And 
we'd have over 3,000 schools engaging in the process in about five years. So, I mean, I think I'm just as shocked every day as anybody else and really grateful, grateful that anyone even wanted to read the book. So, um, you know, it's just, there's just a lot of gratitude. You put things out there and you hope people will, will take them up. And I, it's amazing to watch your energy just rise as you speak about each instance with every school or every student. And you can just hear the tangible um, efficacy that comes from you and that collective efficacy that you're building in so many corners of the world. It's unbelievable. And I know that so many administrators and educators are out there listening and thinking, like, how do we do this? Like, I'm going to go buy that book, but like, what's the first step? What's my first nugget um, to get moving towards? And so what advice, Paul, can you give to them um, about how us about how to start impact work at a school? What is their their best first step besides having getting your book in their hands? Yeah, I mean, I think um, in version two, I think that this will come out a lot clearer. But um, I had done doctoral work at University of California, San Diego with my mentor and now one of my best friends, Dr. Alan Daly. And what he really taught me over the course of those years as I was principal, consultant, and doing a doctoral program all at the same time is that we don't do enough at looking at the strengths that every school has. And so I think um, every single time we get a new partnership, the first thing that we do is we do appreciative inquiry into the strengths that they already have. And through that inquiry, we really have people name, what are the leading indicators that led to that incredible success? Because as Barb and I write in the very you know, beginning of the book, that we believe that all of the expertise already lives under the, the roof of the school or the virtual roof of the school. And so I think the first step for us is always to identify the strengths that already live in the school and what were the leading indicators that led to those strengths. And then that's typically where we begin. And I think that that's very different than a, lot or, than a lot of other frameworks where we're constantly looking for problems and you know what's wrong with people and what's wrong with systems and what's wrong with teams. But our model really points everything to what are the strengths and what led to those strengths. And we use a lot of appreciative inquiry techniques to get there. And I think that that's how we begin. And, and I wish that more people would begin that way, especially in the times that we're living now, um, because I think public education is getting beat up a lot. And what I see on the other end, because I've continued to partner with teachers and leaders and families over the course of the pandemic, I see the opposite. I see all of the things that people have done to bring people together and all of the dedication and sacrifice that teachers have made and leaders have made over the last couple of years and parents have made. And so I would like to change the narrative to start to, to begin to really look at the strengths and the things that we've learned over the last couple of years. Yeah, it's so important to live in that strength-based model. Teachers' are, efficacy is often low. And if we can go in and highlight those strengths, we know there's better end results with that. Yeah, and every team has them and every school has them. And I think that sometimes they don't even know that strengths that lie under the hood of the car, right? You know, because they're, they're, they're being picked apart so much. And I know in turning around the school, 
that I had the pleasure to team with uh, the teachers at Barry Elementary, if we would have focused on everything that we weren't, we never would have made the gains that we did in the short time that we did. But once we started to focus on, on all of the great things that we were, um, we started to start to build our personal efficacy and our personal confidence that started to build a collective confidence that we could do anything that we set our mind to. How do you envision coaches best supporting impact teamwork? I mean, I think a lot of it through the way that I just spoke about, but I think really it's through partnership. And, you know, I've grown to really love and adore Jim Knight and his partnership principles. And I think um, the more that I've gotten to collaborate and talk to him, the more that I really believe in his work around partnership. But I really think that the best way for coaches to support the work is to build strong partnerships with teachers and students and leaders. And it's through that partnership that you can really do amazing, beautiful things. I feel that it's also like if there's one spot where I see coaches being invaluable, it's in the scaling of the work. And so we always have coaches around the table when we're out, you know, launching impact teams because we know that they, chances are that they're going to be the bridge um, between this launch work and quality implementation. And then I also think we have built a lot of structures for coaches for how are they going to engage in coaching cycles around the formative assessment process. And so typically, you know, now as the work has evolved over the last five, six years, you know, we do a lot of work with coaches. So if they're a part of the team, you know, when our day ends, we bring the coaches around the table and then we talk about what are the different ways that we can leverage their expertise to grow capacity across the school, especially with the classroom protocol, which would be really grounded in the formative assessment process. And so that's like really at the heart of the model. And I think it, it got misunderstood in the first version of the book. And I don't know if it's our fault or if it's the interpretation, it really doesn't matter to me. But in the new book, um, it'll be really clear that at the heart of the model is the classroom protocol. And so as we reignite work across the country and world, we really start with that now. We've even revised the whole foundation day um, to be more focused on the learner. It's so powerful that your positive presupposition is your foundation, and it's all about building that trust over time and very systematically in order for us to be willing to be vulnerable in order to grow. And really just focusing on those positives always end up in a better space. Even just this last week doing positive walkthroughs with the principal, it was amazing how you can see the energy in a school just change. So I, I just think it's amazing yeah. to see how that evolution can happen over time. You gave us so many tips and tricks if there is a new site that's trying to roll into Impact Teams. So we appreciate that. And also you sharing the story of education of the last year and honoring the educator and all of the things that they're trying to uphold while doing this powerful work. Yeah, I also think that, you know, everyone's talking about accelerating learning, but what they don't realize is with the formative assessment process, um, when you implement that deeply, it accelerates learning twofold and threefold. And everyone is like looking for the silver bullet, but no one is really digging deep and staying focused on the formative assessment process. And I really attribute that to, um, he's now retired, but Superintendent Anthony Ladico of District 31, you know, he got up in front when we first met and he said, 
you know, to the principals, we are going to stay the course on this for three to four years. Our goal is going to be quality implementation of the formative assessment process, and we are not going to waver. And for a superintendent to have that kind of courage and that focus, you know, I mean, I really tribute a lot to him and his trust in me to really knowing that teachers can't have a new goal every year and the board can't create new goals every year because we have to give time for people to get good at through deliberate practice, engaging kids in the formative assessment process. And it takes about four years for a whole school to use self-assessment, peer assessment, goal setting, reflection with quality, where it becomes automatic for teachers, where it just becomes a part of their toolkit. And it's something that they do because they want to do it. And when you know that you've had quality implementation is when the kids just start using those strategies without the teacher. And, you know, we have videos of kids saying, well, we should be self-assessing and peer assessing even when the teacher doesn't even ask us to. And so like, that's when you know that you have quality implementation of the model. Everyone's looking at the team meeting, but for us, it's through interviewing kids, watching, um, observing in classrooms. That's the litmus test for quality implementation of the formative assessment process, a la impact teams. So knowing that it's a long-term process, what are some ways that we can ensure that this work becomes more sustainable? Yeah, I mean, typically what's really interesting about the core collaborative is, you know, we've had partners for seven years. That's unheard of and consulting relationships. You know, we don't do workshops. We don't fly in and do a workshop if we're not going to b- develop a long-term partnership at all levels of the system. It's just not the right kind of um, system for us. And there's no harm in saying that, but we know that it's the long-term support and meaning the support doesn't mean it has to be like a consulting support where, you know, we're out you know, we fly out and do the work. It could be Zoom coaching or WebEx coaching or Microsoft Teams coaching or Google Meet coaching. But there's a lot of ways to build sustainability. Um, But I think um, what's at the root of it is constantly gathering student voice, um, using some science behind that. And so having some good interview questions that really get to the heart of what efficacy is all about and interviewing a good swath of students that represent the the demographics um, that your district has or your school has, and then interviewing them over and over and and triangulating, looking at the data and looking for themes and patterns, because if you trust the kids, they'll always lead the way. And so our model of sustainability isn't so much what the teachers are doing, it's through the student voice data that we're collecting. And we collect student voice data typically three times across the year. We code that data. We look for trends and patterns in that data. And then we look for what are our next steps based on what our kids need. And so everything revolves around the learner. We do not look at the functionality of the team. Everyone thinks that we would. You know, we spend a little bit of time on that. But we really hope that teams make these protocols their own. And a lot of the protocols that have been created since the book has come out have been co-constructed with instructional coaches, with teachers, where they found a process that really worked for them. And I'm like, well, how about we 
you know, perfect that together. And then all of a sudden, you know, it'll be in our new book. We have 10 purposeful protocols. Now, now we have an 11th, um, a quick fire inquiry protocol that really was born out of the pandemic. Um, so like at this point, I think Barb would, would agree that impact teams is no longer ball and barbs. It, it happens to be every single person's fingerprints um, that have been all over it. And we're really proud of that. We're really proud that, that our teachers and our educators and our principals and our families and students have found meaning in the work and that they're helping us to grow it um, in more relevant ways. It always just grounds back to that learner and making sure that if we have the focus on the learner, then a lot of the other things like team constructs and other things fall aside because our focus is on the right thing. It, it brings me back to my first year of teaching and reading the 90-90-90 study. So um, it resonates very yeah, yeah. with me. We, we could yeah. sit and keep you here all day, Paul, and I would just love to um, pick your pick your ear and see more things. But we want to shift now into that rapid fire question portion. Okay. If you can start with telling us um, just a little bit about where we can learn more from and with you, where our listeners connect with you and what you have coming down the pike. Yeah, obviously I'm on Twitter, um, Bloomberg underscore Paul. Um, so, I mean, you can just search for me. So, I mean, I've not been as good as Twitter since the pandemic because to be quite honest, I just want to put down the digital device. I do a little bit on Facebook, um, a little bit on LinkedIn, to be honest, I've done less and less on social media because I find it to be kind of toxic. Um, but that's always a place, our YouTube channel, you can just Google the core collaborative YouTube channel and you'll see that come up and there's a ton of videos that we've curated and we're putting more and more on that. I'm doing a lot on, um, on different stages across the country and world. And we promote those from our website, uh, the core collaborative.com. Um, I think the other thing is what's coming down the pike. So I'm really excited about this. Um, district 31 who is under new leadership of Dr. Marion Wilson um, this will eventually be a new book, but now we're working into principal inquiry groups and principal impact teams where we have multiple principals gathered together around a common um, problem of practice. So that we're really excited about. We're growing that this year across New York City. Um, we also have a new book, um, a reboot of our Peer Power book coming out um, hopefully by Jan uh, January, February. And it's really looking at self and peer assessment under this new lens of equity that we're really excited about. We have the Empowered Learner Toolkit, which is a digital curriculum that we've created in Google Slides or Microsoft PowerPoint that can be integrated with Pear Deck and Nearpod so kids can be more involved in the formative assessment process. So we have lots of things on the horizon. And because we weren't consulting a lot over the last two years, uh, we had a lot of time to develop a lot of really great new ideas. And so, I mean, now my job as I kind of take the back seat in the consulting world is just to try to find people that we all believe in that want to have the wonderful life that I've had. And now I'm just trying to support them and helping their dreams come true. So I think now I'm kind of trying to be more in the background and help the people that I love have careers as meaningful as that I've had. 
Well, you are an inspiration. I kind of want to grow up and be like you. So we'll just try to keep growing in that direction. (laughs) But you, you just bring such a wealth of knowledge and you bring such an inspiration to all of your readers and obviously the people on your team. And we're going to see if we can squeeze in two more quick ones. Tell us what's your tagline or your bumper sticker for coaching or education. So this comes from um, my mentor, Mimi Aronson, who passed away in New York uh, a few years back. And she was my mentor, my idol, my one of my best friends. And she taught me that if you trust the students, they'll always lead the way. And so that has been something that I've held in my heart and something that I believe in and something that every morning that I wake up, I just think if we trust in these learners, they have all the answers if we just listen. Now that belongs in a t-shirt. That's one. <laughs> I'm like, we need to get that printed. It's not mine. So just remember Mimi Aronson <laughs> uh, when you say that, because she just, uh, I really believe made me the person that I am today. What a powerful message, you know, and it, there's so much truth in that. Like when you think back to, being in the classroom, they'll let you know how they feel, what's working and what's not working. If you listen, (laughs) if you listen, yeah, definitely, definitely. What a beautiful sentiment. I know that resonates with every listener, just with children at the center and the core of everything that we do. And just like you said, those students will let you know, and sometimes they'll be radically candid about it and make sure that you're very aware. So yeah, it's so fun. That's for sure. Tell us what is your secret coaching superpower or your go-to move? So I asked my husband that today because unfortunately for him, he has to listen to me in my office coach all day long. And he said, and I and 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 it was a really thoughtful response. He's like, what you do really well is that you look for the strengths in every single person that you come in contact with. And like the first question that I ask people is what are they most proud about and why? And I feel like it's through that relationship of strengths that has allowed me to build relationships with people all over the world. And I'm just really proud of the people that I connect with because um, it's a partnership and I couldn't do what I do without them and without the kids. And so I think it's that strengths finder approach that has really helped me to be a better coach and to be a better human being. Well, your enthusiasm is contagious. I feel like I'm ready to go take on the world of education and get everyone working on those impact teams. So I appreciate the energy you brought today. And I really, my heart is full and I'm so excited to dive into this work. Me too. And I'm really, you know, just filled with gratitude and appreciation that you would invite me to um, be interviewed on this podcast. So I, you know, thank you a lot. We so appreciate you being here and we're just going to take that strength building approach and go trudge forward in our day. And we appreciate you and want to stay connected and keep you in our PLN and hope that we'll be able to connect soon, Paul. Me too. Thank you so much for your time. Take care. We hope you were just as inspired as we were by Paul's enthusiasm and passion for doing what's best for students. His quote, if we trust in the kids, they will always lead the way, really hits home for me. What are the students in your school telling you? C3, connecting, coaches, cognition. Whose thinking will you mediate today?